Welcome to the Gospel Journey Podcast. The Gospel Journey exists to help our people get into discipling relationships that are centered on God's Word and led by His Spirit. Today we'll be talking about Ephesians 2 from Path 7. My name is Ben Robin, and I'm here with Jamie Trussell and Bryce Rager. Okay guys, let's get into the text. Jamie, what strikes you from verses 1 through 3 right off the bat here? Well, I think being helpful, hopefully, as we're leading people and trying to uh, navigate discipleship relationships, uh, there's a there's a phrase in verse 3 of chapter 2 that, that says, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Uh, that's a big statement. Don't always know what to do with that statement if we're just coming across it for the first time. And if we just take the 30,000-foot view, all Paul's trying to do, in a sense, in verses 1 through 3, is level the playing field. And so whether you're Jew or Gentile, no matter your background or ethnicity, we were all in the same place. And what is that? Born in sin, born apart from God, inheriting guilt and corruption from Adam, meaning none of us lived holy and righteous lives. And so Paul wants all the Jewish background believers to know you're dead in your sins and all the Gentile background believers know you're dead in your sins because that's going to be the platform of almost, almost saying this, we're all equally lost, so we all must be equally saved. And so we're going to eliminate any sense of spiritual hierarchy as Paul's revealing this idea of Jew and Gentiles are to be one body of people. It's hard to do that if you think there's a spiritual elite. Yeah, I, I think the teaching of verses 1 through 3 here on um, all of mankind's deadness and sin, this mm-hmm. the phrase children of wrath is what you, you picked up on, it's very contrary to one very prominent teaching in our culture, which says that we're all born as sort of clean slates, if you will. Yeah. We're, we're not either good or bad until we've done our first good or bad thing. So um, the culture might say we become sinners as soon as we sin, whereas the Bible says, contrary to that, no, we're sinners from birth. Well, and we I, actually sin because we're sinners. Well, I would actually take it a step further. I don't even think culture says we are sinners anymore. I think we are inherently good. I would think it's Fair totally enough. counter. Yeah, I, I would think agree the biblical with that. perspective is actually completely countercultural. And we're and, and and when we're saying we're inherently bad, that's almost a, a poor way of phrasing it because we are inherently bearing the image of God as yeah, humans. Everyone. Absolutely. So there's beauty, there's worth, there's value in that. What we are saying is, because of what Adam did, we are born guilty and corrupt. And, and separated of, from God. Yes. It has more to do with moral choices. When it comes to making moral choices, we don't have the ability or the capacity to make good choices in and of ourselves. Well, we can make not ultimately good choices. Right. We can do a good thing. Sure. But it can't be... Um, it can't be purely motivated and properly aligned with doing it for God. That good thing Absolutely. will be stained by selfish ambitions. That's right. And you know, one way to think about this too is is you may try to be like, well, I didn't vote for Adam. He wasn't. I didn't want him to do what he did. Why am I guilty of what he did? Why am I born with repercussions of what he did? That's not fair. Well, let's keep in mind we're sinners both by position and practice. And all I mean by position is. We're found in Adam because we're human, and all I mean by practice is we actually sin. So we're positionally sinners because of Adam, and we practice it out so we earn our own guilt and corruption and condemnation as well. And if we want to say that's not fair, then we have to also hold the position that it's equally unfair to For receive. Christ to represent us. That's exactly yeah. right, yeah. Exactly because right. we're much more like Adam than we are like Jesus. Absolutely. And that's so, yeah, point. I just think, look, look and Paul's saying, look, naturally, humanity— uh, we rebel against God. That's just in us, and that's who we are. I think so. I think our our nature is 
not to believe this. <laughs> we want to believe the best about ourselves, of course. Um, we want to make our names great. We want uh, to do our will and not the Lord's by nature. And so uh, a popular analogy might go something along the lines of this. Um, we all are, are on a cruise ship with Jesus. We've been saved and we have a relationship with him. And there, we're on this large ocean that is the world. And there are people out there who are drowning and they're wailing, waving their arms and they're flailing and they're saying, help me, please send me a lifesaver. Right? I want to be on the cruise ship with Jesus. And what this verse is saying is that that whole analogy is actually not helpful. Instead of us being drowning, looking for a lifesaver to be thrown to us, we're dead at the bottom of the sea. Yeah. And we need Jesus to reach down to the bottom of the ocean, pick up a dead corpse, and give it life. That's what's happening in verse 4. And I think this is really important if we take this on a practical application of sharing the gospel. So I think in a lot of ways, Christians want to go straight to Jesus. Hey, you need Jesus. Believe in Jesus. But if you don't share this bad news that we are separated from him, that we are children of wrath, then the person that you're sharing to will have no idea why he needs Jesus. Mm -hmm. uh, a pastor said, if you minimize sin, you minimize the cross, right? Because Christ paid for our sins on the cross. And so we must start here to show that there is space between us and God, and Christ is the one that eliminated that space by his life, death, and resurrection. Praise God. Amen. One thing I don't necessarily love is I think you can take verses 1 through 3 too far. And that's when I hear a lot of people talk about, well, humans, we're just these worthless, stupid. I'm hesitant to do that because the image of God is on us. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I don't want to call humanity stupid and worthless. No, and, of course not. And we have not done that here. But just to keep in mind, we can't go too far in that. It's, it's one thing to say we're by nature children of wrath. It's a whole other thing to say we're these worthless, stupid, meaningless. That goes too far, in my opinion. Humanity has dignity because we're made in the image of Absolutely. God. That image has just been broken by sin, and Christ is going to restore that to its full created potential. The fall does not remove the image of God from us. It just mars it. Yep. It does. Yep. And, and we see the restoration, how it comes in verses 4 through 10. That's right. Right? So, but God, a, a, a conjunction of contrast here that lets us know what's about to follow contrast what came right before it so we had the bad news here comes the good news god rich in his mercy has saved us and mm -hmm. made us alive so you're dead in sins and you're made alive by jesus in verses 8 9 and 10 which is a great place to focus in our gospel journey groups a lot of us have heard these passages before but this really is the the this is a turning point for for us as people we were dead in our sins but by grace we've been saved through faith not of our own but as a gift of god Important to note that, that grace saving us through faith is contrary, again, in verse 9, to works, right? It's not that um, Bryce saved himself or that I saved myself or that Jamie saved himself. It's that God saved each one of us in the same way, by grace, through faith. And so there's nothing for us to boast in. Jeremiah says, let the one who boasts, boast not in his wisdom or in his riches, but in this, that he knows and understands me, the Lord, Yahweh. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and Paul would echo Jeremiah's words in a sense when he talks about, I don't boast anything but Christ. That's right. Christ alone. And if anyone could brag in their works, I would say Paul has a good platform. He would be on the short right? list. He would be on the short list to brag about his works. But yeah, salvation doesn't come as a result of works. It is a gift. Now, we do cheapen salvation if we don't realize that gifts still cost something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and this was a costly 
God can make it available to us freely. We must respond in faith and repentance, but it can be made freely because the price was still paid. It couldn't have cost anything more than it did. The death of the only Son of God, the That's perfect right. one. That's right. That's exactly right. Uh, now, and I'm interested in y'all's perspective on this. We love to memorize 8 and 9. Uh, 10 is connected. Right, so just a little Bible study uh, tool for us in our groups. Anytime we see the word four, it's a continued explanation mm-hmm. of what's already come. And so 10 is connected to salvation, for we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works. Uh, I would love to hear y'all's comment on this idea that, that, that these good works that God's prepared, that's tied to our salvation. And so I think it'd be good to help our people navigate that relationship. Yeah, I think that uh, some have wanted to say, um, that it must be the case that it's faith and works uh, are required for salvation, are required for justification specifically. That to be in right relationship with God, I've got to have faith in Jesus, yes, but I also need good works. And this is actually what the Reformation was about. Uh, it's interesting that today, as we record this, is the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's posting of the 95 Theses, the event that scholars say started the Reformation. And this is really what it was about. Is it faith alone in Christ alone? that gives you relationship with God, or is it faith in something else? And so we would say as Protestants that it's faith alone. God saves us by grace through faith alone. And that as a result of that salvation, this is verse 10, good works follow. That so the faith good work, is never alone. That's right. That's what Luther said. The good works that we do after we've been saved confirms the fact that we have been saved. Yeah, and the works are obviously important because it says God prepared them That's beforehand right. that we should walk in them. That's right. Absolutely. Uh, you know, salvation should result in obedience. It doesn't come because of obedience, but if you are claiming the name of Christ, but you your life looks like unrepentant disobedience, it's hard for me to even say pastorally that you should feel confident that you truly know the Lord. Because we read in Matthew, a good tree bears good fruit, and a bad tree bears bad fruit. And if we've been made alive with God, as it says in verse 4 and 5, then that ultimately is going to result in good works, that we are going to bear peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, self-control, all these things um, that show God's glory. Those will be evident in our lives. Not perfectly, not not. to say we're not going to sin, but those will be evident, though. And not just sin. Like, we can, I think, even be in seasons of sin, but your word ultimate is key there. The Christian ultimately will repent. That's right. And will turn. Like, if you took, sometimes I like to think of it like this, if you took the span of my life, in those old school Polaroids, which you two know nothing about, um, <laughs> that is not true. And and those old school Polaroids, where you take it and you shake it, and it, and the picture comes out and lay it across. Depending on which Polaroid you choose and position, I could convince you I never knew the Lord. Mm-hmm. And I could then take other Polaroids, much fewer, and convince you I've only ever known the Lord. Well, what's true? It, neither of those. What's true is that since coming to Christ, there are seasons of disobedience in my life unfortunately, and there's seasons of more obedience. The goal is I'm growing, and the seasons of disobedience are shrinking as far as their elongation. And I think one of the things we can do in response to this truth in our gospel journey groups is we can talk about don't look at our lives in short day-by-day moments. Look at long periods of time. Look at what God is doing to complete the work he started in your life over long years, maybe even decades if you've been with the Lord that long. 
uh, I think that's one thing that we can encourage ourselves to do. The other thing that maybe we could do in our groups is to talk about our disposition toward those seasons of sin. How do I feel about sin? Even when I do fall into it as a Christian, which will happen, how do I feel about it? And am I excited about it? Do I long for the old days, kind of like the Israelites in the wilderness when we were enslaved in Egypt? Or do I hate my sin now? And am I gripped by it in a way I don't want to be? That's great. Before we move on to verses 11 through 22, I don't want to skip over verses 6 through 7 because I think they're really important. When I read verses 6, I see past tense raised up and seated with him in the heavenly places. And I think to myself, I'm not in the heavenly places right Mm -hmm. now. What does that mean? And, And as I've done further study, I think Paul is saying that though we're not there yet, the promise is so certain because we are in Christ Jesus that he can talk like it's already happened. And where is Christ right now? Christ is in the heavenly places, sitting at the right hand of God. And so Paul knows because Christ is there, because he's been raised from the dead, that he is the first fruits, the check has cleared, and that we will be with him when we die. That's right. And I think verse 7 can be equally important. There's a so that right there as we're reading our Bible. We want to pay attention to to words like that that seem to connect ideas. So the sort of ground or the main point or the reason that the things we've been reading about are happening is because so that, it says, in the coming ages God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Uh, I read this these 10 verses uh, a long time, and I read them always the same way. Deadness and sin, alive in Christ, um, saved by grace through faith so that good works will follow, right? Which is what we've just done here. And it wasn't until I was in seminary in a hermeneutics class, which is just learning how to, to read and interpret the Bible, uh, my professor actually said, verse 7 is the main point of these verses. Um, and because of that so, that, so that clause, we kind of see that. The idea is that God wants to display his attributes, Our salvation, as we've said before, is ultimately not about us. It's about God. God wants to show how good and gracious and loving and kind he is by saving sinners like us. Amen. And that's a great segue to the next section because another way that God puts his greatness on display is by creating the church. By bringing Jews and Gentiles together into one body. And that's where he begins in verse 11. Remember, right? So this is actually writing to the Gentile background believers. Remember, at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called uncircumcision, what's called circumcision, which is in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the common. So Paul's about to go through this idea of, hey, remember who you were. Because in remembering who you were, you have a deeper, more accurate appreciation of who Christ has made you to be, which is a wonderful discipleship point in our groups of remembering who we were before Christ, remembering who we are in Christ, but to carry that beyond the individual identity, right? So, so yes, you know, Ben, you were individually a child of wrath, and Christ has redeemed you, brought you to life. Paul's saying, remember that, appreciate that, understand God's grace in that, but don't stop there. Because part of this mystery that Paul's going to unpack in verse three or chapter three of Ephesians is you were then taken as an individual and placed into this larger body that manifests God's glory and wisdom to the world. So when people that don't look like each other, that the world would say shouldn't be together, there's no ground for commonality, begin to come together, 
God says, that's my manifold wisdom on display. Does that make sense? Absolutely. That's incredible. One of the, the lines that tended to divide in the world at the time that this was written was ethnicity. It was race. It, Jew and Gentile were divided even by the temple structure. But the idea here is that the lines in the world that divide, Christ can even unite across those lines. So even Jew and Gentile, right? That's we right. could say e- even Caucasian and African-American today can be united in Christ because of his blood. The one who has died for everyone who's dead in sin, just like everyone else can now make them alive in Christ. Yeah. And it says in verse 14 that he is our peace. He's our peace. And again, biblically considered peace, isn't just the absence of conflict. Peace is the restoration of wholeness. And so we don't just come together as a body of Christ and think everything's okay just because we don't have overt conflict. If we're not pursuing actual wholeness and restoration, we're not stepping into the reality of Christ being our peace. Does that make sense? Yeah. Peace is something we actively pursue as Christians. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, not peacekeepers, peacemakers. As we're thinking about this corporate nature of becoming a gospel people, which is what Path 7 is all about, It's not so much, like you said, Jamie, it's not so much becoming a gospel person, which also is good and true, but it's becoming a gospel people. There's this inherent corporateness, this together, this community aspect of doing the Christian life in community here at Harvest. Uh, I noticed that, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about as I was thinking about um, ethnic division or racial division in the world today is that it seems like the culture wants to say, you know, we want unity, in order to have unity, we're going to have to erase diversity. Everyone's going to have to be the same so that we can have unity. I don't see any color. That seems to be that seems to be a prevailing notion in the culture that in order for us to have any unity at all, we can't have diversity. That's not at all what Paul is saying. So when Paul says there's neither Jew nor Gentile in Christ, he's not saying that we erase your ethnicity at all. In fact, in the church, because Christ's blood is so precious and it covers all of us in the church— We can have true unity in true diversity. We don't have to erase the dividing lines. They are covered. We are united across them. We still have different cultural backgrounds and ethnicities and uh, socioeconomic backgrounds and all these things that typically would divide in the world. We are united in Christ across them. Yeah, and talking about, to follow up what you said specifically about ethnicity or race, and you said we don't have to erase those. It's not even that we don't have to. It's that we're not even supposed to. Yeah. Mm Because if we do, we lose. If we really believe the scriptures say we were knit together in the womb by God, it means we come out of that womb exactly as God has intended us to be. And so skin color is part of God's tapestry to display his goodness and grace to the world. And so we're not supposed to live in a colorblind society. The problem is when we use race, color, ethnicity, however you want to talk about it, as reasons for division. That's where it's problematic. That, and that's why some people would want to erase it because just, you know, maybe it's a divisive thing. Well, no, we need to do some heart-level work if that's the case. And that certainly shouldn't be the case in the church. We're naive to think it isn't, though, because it certainly is. And that's where Paul gets to. Look at verse 14. He says he's broken down the dividing wall of hostility. Well, textually, 
He's talking about the law here and the commandments and ordinances. But we can take as application and implication, we have our own dividing walls of hostility in 2017, especially in our Memphis context. And so it's still faithful to the text to say this is what he's teaching here about the law and commandments, but then to step out of that and say, okay, what is a dividing wall of hostility here and now for us? And again, it's certainly, uh, it's certainly still race in our context. As Jamie, you were talking about how there are dividing walls um, inside the body of Christ today, but, but as we read in the text that Christ has broken those things down, um, I, I, it brought me to Revelation 7 to, to see an end, the end picture of how one day, by God's grace, all that will be broken down for good, and that it says, a great multitude that nobody can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, worshiping Him. While this is a heavenly reality, this should also be our earthly pursuit. So as we kind of move towards closing our time down here, uh, again, focusing on this corporate idea of the church, and we are saved We are saved individually, certainly, but into a body of believers. Paul uh, begins to unpack a, a one of the New Testament images of the church, and he picks it up almost, to, it, it's architectural. He talks about a household, and he's going to talk about a cornerstone, and, and he's going to talk about a structure. We see this theme run through the end of chapter 2. And so uh, we pick up there talking about we are members of the household of God. There's, that's, that's clearly corporate. That, that there is, If you think about any family, any structure, it all it doesn't hold together by itself. And so we are members of the household of God, and this household is built on something. So here we begin this construction language in, in, in verse 20. It says, well, built on, so there's a foundation. What is the foundation of this household we're members of? He says the apostles and the prophets. I take that to be God's scriptures. I take that to be the teachings of the Old and New Testaments that we are built upon something. That is our foundation. We stand upon what we've learned from the prophets, we've learned from the apostles. However, they get their instruction from something. That's what's so interesting about the choice of cornerstone here as part of the construction process. So architecturally considered, the cornerstone is the first thing you lay that sets the lines and directions and scope and span of the entire structure. And so the foundation is laid upon uh, the reality of where the cornerstone is set. And so what is the cornerstone? Basically, Paul is saying everything holds together in church because of Christ. Christ determines the direction. Christ determines the structure. Christ determines the architecture, uh, metaphorically speaking here. Everything is built upon that. So the apostles and prophets are built upon the cornerstone of Christ. We stand upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and thus we're joined together in this structure called the church that obviously can't be individualistic. What are y'all's thoughts on that? It's interesting that at the end of chapter 1, we see that Christ is the head of the church. End of chapter 2, Christ is the cornerstone of the church, and so we're seeing how all of these things, as you said, are held together That's by right. the very power and presence of Christ, that he is the one we are gathered around and focused upon. I, I was struck as you were speaking about being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The reason that we can have the unity we've just talked about is because we are united in truth. Mm. We have a shared core identity and truth and life and worldview based upon the Christian scriptures. God tells us how we are to live, how we are to think, what we are to do, 
and we all together as one work as we can in the power of the Spirit by God's grace toward that end. That's right. And it says we are uh, uh, growing and being joined together, being built together. Like We are continually as a people growing into this structure that should be looking more and more like Jesus. That's right. Being uh, uh, reflecting the teachings of the apostles and prophets more and more and more. It's almost this idea of of together. So individually we're being sanctified, which just means being made more and more in the likeness of Christ. And corporately we should be growing in to that image as well. As we continue on in path seven, we're going to go into first Timothy after we finish Ephesians. And we're going to see this, this theme of the household of God, the church developed even further in this path as we become a gospel people. Talking about the last verse being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, I think we can um, gloss over this and not really understand the massive implications that God is dwelling in us. We take it back to Genesis 1. God was dwelling with Adam and Eve in the garden, but we know Genesis 3 that when they sinned before him, they hid and they were separated from him. But God continues to want to dwell with his people as we see the tabernacle and then the temple. And then we see in John 1 that the word became flesh and he dwelt among us and God became flesh and dwelt with us. But again, it doesn't stop there because we talk about in Ephesians 2, 4, that he regenerates us and his spirit comes to live inside of us and he dwells in us, which is an amazing truth that the holy God of the universe would come dwell in us to make his great name known. And he's building us into a people for his glory. And I think we see in Revelation 22, the end picture, when we are finally dwelling with God face to face. And it says there's no need for a son because the Almighty and the Lamb are there and we will see his glory fully. And I think that's unbelievable that right now God is dwelling in us, but there will be one day when we will be perfectly dwelling with him. Bryce, I think you're exactly right. One of the mega themes of Scripture is that God wants to dwell with His people. And we see this theme of the presence of God in the the Garden of Eden and the temple and the tabernacle and in the person of Christ and in the Holy Spirit in His people. And then just as you said, finally in Revelation 21, we hear this. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. I look forward to that day. Absolutely. Absolutely.